You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you're challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series on church history. Now looking at lessons from church history. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. I really appreciate the, um, the introduction there. Thanks very much, Tom. And I'm recording this for the benefit of those who may miss it. I'll be uh, editing it too because there are a few announcement type things at the beginning. Uh, I really did enjoy Sunday. It was great to be at the second anniversary. And we've been coming to North River. Well, we've been coming for about three years, but consistently for two years. And it's really encouraging to see how God is, has brought us here. I had a... I had a recruiting offer today. Someone was trying to get me to move to another city, and it was a full financial package. It was everything, but I just couldn't say yes to that. This is my uh, this is my family right now. I'm very encouraged, but there is some competition. But it was it was great. And uh, you've been so supportive of our family and of my ministry these last three years that uh, we've been coming over here, and I really do appreciate it. Sunday was really something. Uh, we, uh, some of you in this room went to the museum. Many of you were for kind of the pre-lecture, the let's prepare for what we're going to see. But we saw some, some really cool things. We saw the bone box, where actually the bones of Caiaphas, the high priest, were. We saw the foot of the crucified man, you know, the first physical evidence of crucifixion that survived. That foot, by the way, was discovered in 1968, kind of modern. We saw huge stone jars that held 20 to 30 gallons each from Galilee, the the exact kind that Jesus did one of his miracles in, turning the water to wine. We saw the coins of the money changers. We saw the kinds of implements that were used at the Last Supper. We saw the pilot stone, the inscription from Caesarea Maritima, that actually says Pontius Pilate, showing that he, along with a slew of other biblical characters, is not just a legendary flourish, Uh, is a real, someone rooted in history. We saw one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We went into a Byzantine church, a a reconstructed chapel from the 4th or 5th century, and actually saw what the baptistry looked like then. Very unusual. And when when you go to exhibitions like this, this exhibition called The Cradle of Christianity, which is at Emory. You can go any day you want. It's there until sometime in October. I think it stimulates us, makes us want to read a book about archaeology or just dig more into the Bible or learn more about Judaism or, or history, geography, or especially church history. Now, before I begin, the lesson I've been asked to teach is lessons from church history. Church history is, if I've got my dates right, 1,977 years in the making. I said, how long do I have for that, Tom? And he said, well, 30, 35 minutes. Normally when I teach church history, I actually take us through century by century. And you, you pick the century and I'll tell you what happened and my feel for it, how the church was doing. Okay. Now, before I jump in, lessons on, of church history... I just want to see a few hands. What interests you? What puzzles you? What's happened this last couple thousand years? Is there a burning question? There are a lot of burning questions. There are a lot of very important questions. Prime the pump for me. Say what you're thinking and briefly. Thank you. Uh, A while back you touched on 
the uh, spreading of Christianity to the east. How Christianity spread to the east? Yes. And, uh, Through China, Afghanistan, Japan. Right. A thousand years before the Catholic missionaries got there. Fascinating. We can't get into that tonight. <laughs> I, I, could do the, I could do a class on the, the spread of the church, the untold story. See, we, we know about the Catholics and the Orthodox, and then later the Protestant Reformation. We don't know the story of the church of the East, but it's incredible, this suppressed, seldom told story. Okay? The Ethiopian eunuch. How they claim him as their saint who started their church and everything. We just have no evidence. See, you have to distinguish between uh, history and speculation. Or something a preacher said or was forwarded to you in an email that might be true, but when you try to track it down, it's totally elusive. We just don't know. There's so many things we don't know. Oh, oh, we could study what people say about the Ethiopian, but I don't think we, we know. <laughs> and I'm sorry. I would like to be definitive. Yeah. Uh, I guess the relationship of where the church was and, and what was happening around the time of the Crusades. Yeah, what was in these guys' heads, say from 1095, when they started organizing the First Crusade up until the late 1200s, retaking the Holy Land from the infidel Muslims, um, what were they thinking? And if you saw that movie, Kingdom of God, a couple of years ago about the Crusades, I think that actually did a pretty good job, also showing that often the Muslims were the righteous ones, not the Christians. But that, that itself is, is worthy of a class. We could do a class just on the four crusades and all the little crusades. How the church survived through the Middle Ages. How did the church survive? In, in what way particularly? You mean... With all the persecutions of anybody that wasn't part of the established... Yeah, the pressure was on to be part of the established church, and there were many dissenting groups, and we know the stories of many of these dissenting groups, but there probably, for every story we know, there are probably many that we don't know because the winners write the history books. It's exciting even to think about that and speculate. I think the next generation and how what, what caused it, everything to stop at different points and restart and how we don't do that again. Yeah, the lessons we can learn, things that were going along well with momentum and then there was a disaster or things stopped and then and they resumed. You really think we have lessons to learn from church history? It's just boring, unrelated to anything we are or think about? Uh, Dave? If you'd like to know exactly what the church looked like in the late first century and the early second century, there are dozens of documents you can read written during that period by Christians. And some of the books I brought here, I brought about... Eh, not half. Maybe a third of my church history books I put up here on the table. I hope some of you will browse later. You can't buy them. These are not for sale. I am going to give away one at the end. But there's a lot to read. If we hate to read, could you just... <laughs> yes. I would be thrilled. Um, that's going to be our, our emphasis in Ephesus. All you have to do is come to uh, Istanbul, Ephesus, Laodicea in November. And we're, that's what we're actually focusing on. But really, you have to give me a few hours. Depends how superficial you want me to be. I mean, there's superficial, then there's incredibly superficial. I mean, I, I can give you the praise. Okay, second century, most people went to church. I think we're still real Christians. The false doctrine is ramping up. But... Um, 
There are a lot of reasons that the church stays pure. I mean, you know, in the first century, there was very little Roman persecution. That's one of the myths. Oh, the, if you were baptized in the first century, you'd be thrown to the lions. Not very likely. There were a few years at the end of the century that were bad, and there was the summer of 64, which was bad. But first century, the Romans didn't really do anything to the Christians. And the second century is when the Romans got all over the Christians. And that's an interesting topic. One last thing, just to prime the pump. And now, actually, I have something, a handout. And I don't know where to go. I'm going to go in the corner. You're curious about how Christianity and why it became such a cult during the dark ages. Why it became so such a cult. What stop what stopped it? I'm so sorry, I'm missing a word. A cult, you said? Oh, came to a halt. Right. Well that but that's the question. Did it come to a complete halt? And obviously a lot of people would be very offended if they even listen to this recording right now. And um, <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean Christianity came to a halt? Well, I think for the most part it did come to a halt. And the, the evidence of history and of church history itself is overwhelmingly in favor of that, that diagnosis, as dire as it is. But what was it? What's the enemy of the church? I mean, what are the things that Jesus warned us about that could stop the church? And, uh, you know, we're talking about the parable of the sower. Soil number three. I remember being asked when I was teaching a few years ago in Boston, you know, what, what, it, what did I think was the thing that could actually stop what we're trying to do? Our vision to simply be Christians and bring other people in. What was the biggest threat? Was it lukewarmness? I said, no, I don't think that's it. That's a symptom anyway, not a cause. What is it? Is it sexual sin? Well, that could do it, but I don't think that's it. I said, I I think it is simply the world. It's materialism. And I think that prediction's been borne out. There's a lot of people, at least since then, last ten years, nine years, have, have really gone after the world. They may still come to church, but all their time and energy is about money. It's not about the church. I have a handout here, and this is going to help, but I need some volunteers. Thank you very much. I made um, 110. I may have estimated just right, but be prepared to share just in case. I want to begin talking about fruitful fields of study, and then we're going to look at some recurring themes. And I'll be reading tonight from the ESV, the English Standard Version, which came out in 2001. It's my brand new Bible. I've never read it before tonight, so we'll see how it goes. But as you get this, rather than trying to go century by century or to share every possible lesson there might be in there, I did want to share some things from my heart. And you may look at this handout and say, well, this is kind of academic. Well, academic doesn't necessarily preclude the heart. Truth itself can be very heartfelt and academic. One of my um, favorite audio series that I recorded was the one on the Psalms, which I tell people was my most personal and my most academic at the same time. It's my most feminine, if you will. 
of all the things I've done. I share, I'm vulnerable. I share a lot, but it's also very academic. In church history, when we take the time to, to study it, if you want to call that academic, fine. I think we actually get in touch with some heart issues very quickly. I see three fruitful fields for the study of church history. And the first one is simply Old Testament history. You say, well, wait a minute. Old Testament is, that's before the church. Okay, why is the Old Testament in our Bible? It'd be a lot easier to be a Christian if you could take out the first 969 chapters, wouldn't it? All you had to do was read the New Testament. But it would be inauthentic. In fact, the Bible of the early church was the Old Testament. So if you don't know your Old Testament very well, there's a one, at least one massive difference between us and the, the ancient Christians. Right? Because they really were saturated in the Bible. And so what I've written here, while there's nothing new, there's much to learn. And it's a little paradoxical, but then church history is, is difficult. I think you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 10. May I read just a few verses? I won't read all the verses on the sheet tonight. I want you to know, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he gives examples of three or four ways that they got sucked into the world even after their redemption from Egypt. And then he concludes in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. What he's saying right here is that the lessons of Old Testament history are for us. We need those examples if we're not going to fall. You say, well, I'm doing okay spiritually, I'm not going to fall. I think he's talking about the church. He's saying in a way, the ancient church, the church in the desert, they were baptized. You know, they came through the water. Water on the left, water on the right, water above them, the wet cloud, you know, the cloud. They had a kind of communion. So what? You're baptized. So what? You take communion every week. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. That's a pretty powerful incentive. Please turn to 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2, where Peter, in the probably months, if not weeks, before he was crucified, gives some warnings about what Christians should expect. And in 2 Peter 2, 1... He refers to Old Testament history yet again. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now you might say, weren't there already false teachers? Sure there were. All the letters talk about that. But he's talking about something in the future, something yet to come. How does he flesh it out? Well, he says they will secretly uh, bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. The destruction is not asleep. And then he gives lots of examples in the rest of the chapter why we've got to be on our guard. He prophesies, just as Jesus did, that in church history, many false teachers would rise up to lead astray the church. So if, if the church actually had stayed on track, that would have been surprising. It 
would have contradicted, it would have shown that, that Peter was a false prophet. And we see this kind of stuff in the Old Testament. Don't look at me like Doug, that's so negative. Let's talk about reality here. What does Moses say before he dies? You ever read the Song of Moses? That's a depressing song. Basically, yeah, my people, I redeem them. You know, they're totally helpless and depend on me. But as soon, you know, as soon as I die, you're all going to leave. You're all going to turn away to idolatry. And he made them learn that song. So then when it happened, they would, they would remember, or at least some would remember, those who are pure-hearted. Joshua, similar kind of thing. Look at the, the last chapters of Joshua. But the Old Testament is there to help us do well spiritually, not just so you can find a, a good verse each morning to you know, get you going. No, it's for us as a body, a body corporate, a body national, international, whoever we're connected with. Romans 15, we won't turn there, but it's the one that says, what was written was written to give us hope, to give us encouragement. And that comes from the scriptures. And he's talking clearly about the Old Testament scriptures since the New Testament scriptures weren't written yet. And then I put down 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is... God breathed and useful. Which testament is he referring to? Of course, yeah, of course, it applies to the New Testament by extension. But at that time, he's referring to the scriptures in verse 14, the scriptures that Timothy knew since he was a boy. And I promise you, it didn't include Matthew and Ephesians. If all scripture is inspired and useful, and I, I do this to audiences all over the world. How many of you believe all scripture is inspired? You know, people put their hand up. Yeah. yeah. How many believe it's useful? Because there's a third question coming. Okay, so are you using all Scripture? And when was the last time you, you, you benefited from Hosea or taught Joel or shared Obadiah with your family? When was the last time Deuteronomy or Numbers were helpful in your evangelism? Oh, well, I it's not useful that way. I mean, it's just useful because uh, what? Because it makes the Bible a heavier, thicker book? Because the Psalms is the part you like anyway. All scripture means all books of the Old Testament. I don't know any other way to read it. So the first field for Old Testament study is Old Testament history. And you'll see incredible parallels between what the people of Israel did and what happened in these last 2,000 years and even what's happened these last 40 years. Second field of study, the last 2,000 years of church history. Though there's much to learn, there's actually nothing new. Well, why would you study it then? Because it's interesting. And I connect. And Dave was asking about the 2nd century. I still remember the day when the 2nd the century church writers lit a fire in my heart. And I was at a conference in Boston a couple weeks ago, the International Campus Ministry Conference. And I work hard at these conferences, but one evening I had off. And I just started walking. I had my sandals on to relax, which turned out to be a terrible idea because of the distance I walked on concrete. Young people don't get it. Anyone else does. I started walking, and I walked through the old campus ministry territory of Northeastern and Boston universities. And all these memories. I, I was there for just two years. Then I crossed the bridge, crossed the Charles River, and I came into Cambridge to MIT territory. And I walked past all those buildings where I used to deliver newspapers in the middle of the night. And then I came to Harvard, where I did my middle degree. And I just kept on walking. And now as I personally stroll down memory lane, I'm tempted to forget what I'm even saying. <laughs> 
I did go to a, a sub shop. <laughs> same manager, same table, same Pac-Man machine. Incredible. 25 years before was the last time I was there. And I got a pepper steak sub, which is what I would do if I couldn't eat properly. <laughs> couldn't eat properly. <laughs> it was incredible. And I walked six or seven miles and my feet were killing me. Though there's much to learn, there's actually nothing new. <laughs> there was a reason for that. Second century, that's what it was. Okay, I remember when I was at Harvard, I was in the wrong century. I, I studied, at Harvard mainly I studied world religions, like a whole year of Buddhism, uh, biblical languages, I did Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and some church history. Those are the things I liked. And I started discovering what was written, like First Clement, which scholars think is written in 96 AD, incredible letter. And then in the, in the uh, around 107, 110, the seven letters of Ignatius, his letters to the Romans. And the uh, Ephesians, his letters to the Ephesians, the Magnesians, the Thralians, and so forth. There are there's so many documents. And I thought, wow, okay, on the one hand, I can see they're getting a bit off there in some of their doctrine, but most of it, they're right on. These guys had a living faith. This is great. I want to know what happened. Okay, I, I know they're okay in the late 1st and early 2nd century. Let's read further. And then I started seeing that the shadows started getting longer as the 2nd century went by. In the 3rd century, even though the martyrdoms were at all-time high, things were getting a little superstitious. And by the 4th century, oh, the 4th century was the utter disaster. When the church, instead of being the bride of Christ, decided to be the bride of the Roman Empire. And this was the great apostasy that was predicted. Two millennia of church history. Hebrews 2.1, the writer said, whoever he was, you know, we've got to pay more careful attention so we don't drift away. And the early church drifted away. And to me, you don't have to drift away overnight. Just a little bit. Just a little bit of a careless attitude. Example, if you were taking a test and you wanted to get 100 but you got a 99, could you live with that? 99 is a pretty good grade. Well, what if we drop the standard to 98? Okay, I'd be happy with the 98. And we'll just drop it maybe one percentage point a year. You know what's going to happen after a couple generations? And you won't even notice it. It's like the frog in the boiling water, you know, the parable, which Jesus told originally. No, he didn't. You won't even notice it. I'm saying the early church drifted away by degrees. It was very subtle, but if you take the time to read history, some of the books that are on that table there, you can see it. And the third field is restoration movement history itself. You say, well, what's the restoration movement? This is our heritage from the early 1800s. This unity movement, this movement, this appeal to Christians to just be Christians, not to be followers of this man or this creed, but just to be Christians. In fact, they said, we're only going to use names like disciple and Christian. And it was a unity movement. They called people to repent of denominationalism and to come out and come together and worship God as simply Christians. And by the end of that century, the 1800s, this was becoming a very divisive movement. It's interesting how you know, these movements pop up every few centuries and they're saying, we want to recapture with the New Testament church. And I'm with them in a way, but in a way I'm not with them. Because we've got to go forward. We can't 
try to reconstruct first century culture. A lot of you are wearing sandals tonight. Sadly, none of you is wearing the proper sandals. So, I mean, how can you reconstruct first century culture? You can't do that. We've got to take the biblical principles and apply them to today. The Restoration Movement was divided by several issues. <laughs> this is all, I mean, this movement begins around 1810. By the 1850s, they're having fights over whether you can have a piano in the church building. They were majoring in the minors. And another huge issue was, was baptism. Do you have to know it's for salvation? Or not? Because they, they said no, but then some people said, actually, you should probably know why. It, and if you don't know, you're not a Christian. That was a huge thing that caused a split. And one that's probably more relevant for us right now, the cooperation issue. Because people valued their autonomy. Others said, no, we need to work together for missionary societies to evangelize the world. Sound like a great idea. But then that threatened the, the leadership, the hegemony of the local elders. And so you had this huge polarization. We're for cooperation, we're against it, and it's still a massive battle in the restoration movement. All three of these are very fruitful fields of study. Let's talk for a moment about the recurring themes. Recurring themes. And these are some of the biggest lessons that, that I would just have to say something about. See, in the second century, the, the role of leaders was exalted quite a bit. And I really enjoyed what Sam Lang was talking about on Sunday. Um, I thought he put it pretty well. Uh, if you weren't there, that we, we, we go to extremes, exalting leadership and then just despising or flattening leadership. Now, I understand that. But this all began in the second century. And the hierarchy started building. In the third century, you know what they actually called church, the main elder in each church? They called them the priest. In other words, Judaism is coming back into Christianity. See, one of the beautiful things about Christianity is there's no priesthood, except because Jesus got taken care of. So, what's happened now? What's happened? Well, now we've got priests. And we have priests, you have sacraments. And you have some people are holier than others. And then, in the 4th century, when they had that wedding they never should have had, when they married the Roman Empire, and now the Roman Empire was paying the salaries of all the priests, the Roman Empire was, was basically making their building, building their buildings. I mean, if you wanted a building, the Roman government would b b pay for your church building. You wouldn't need to raise money. The government took it out of taxes. You say, that's wonderful. You know what I think happened then? I think it was the end of small groups. What made early Christianity strong was that they met in homes. Yeah. Now listen, I'm not saying I'm anti-building any more than I'm anti-piano or anti-cooperation or anti-anything. But if you don't preserve the small group structure in a large church, you get lost. Amen. You come in and you can be anonymous. You could be doing lousy. You could be at the brink about to ruin in the midst of the assembly, Proverbs 5.14. And you know it, but maybe no one else knows it because people are out of the habit of even caring. And I know in North River we have a small group structure, which is functional or dysfunctional in degrees depending on where you are and what you do. I'm sure it needs to be strengthened and redoubled. But in the 4th century, now you came to the big building. Whoa! You're, now you're not meeting with 10 or 50 or, or 80, maybe at the most, in a large home. Christians, now you're meeting with hundreds and thousands. So Christianity became a spectator sport. 
And I think that was the death knell as far as this clergy laity thing. And I gave examples here. First, if you don't know all these verses, it's okay. You can read them later. First Kings 13.4. You know, I, I teach that we're responsible to give feedback. I th- by the way, I think we have that one down right now. That's good. And leaders are responsible to seek input. And I put the example of uh, in 1 Kings 13 where Jeroboam, you know, the, the prophet is challenging him. And he says, seize him. He won't take input. Or I put down um, Uzziah. Remember 2 Chronicles 26? He said, I want to offer incense in the temple. And 80 courageous priests go in after him. Second lesson, church and politics don't mix. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Watch out for the world. Boy, that's a huge one. Speak where the Bible speaks. Be leery of anything in addition to the written word. You know these passages. It's very tempting to base our confidence on extra-biblical documents. Oh, I like that North River newsletter. Okay, that'll be my creed. Okay, well, that's your creed. Why don't you just study that every day? Forget the Bible. Why do you need the Bible if that's the important part? See, these things can lead us away if we're not careful. By the way, I like the newsletter. Don't, whatever, don't misquote me. Carefully appointing people to leadership. This is a massive one. See, in the early church, to be a leader, you were already, they followed the requirements. You were a respected person. You're an elder. You've shown you can walk the walk. You can take the stand. As persecution heated up, if you wanted to be a leader, you were automatically, in a way, respected. Because, you know, when the persecution happened, who did they go after? It was the main leaders. They, they tried to go after the, the overseers. They're the ones who went to jail. They're the ones who were executed. They're the ones who were sent to work in the mines in Sicily and other places because the Romans, you know, forced labor. They went after the main guys. So leadership was pure. But after Christianity became respectable, do you know what happened? And within just a few hundred years, to be a church leader was something you bought. Because remember, you're a government employee. It's a sinecure. It's a guaranteed uh, salary. It's incredible. So you had atheists buying bishoprics. In other words, who knows who? I don't even believe in God. But I want to be a bishop. And that was allowed. I mean, it was incredible. Biblical training is vital. 1 Timothy 3.6, appointing people to leadership who haven't been trained in how the rubber meets the road with the Bible. That's a big mistake. The unity is worth the struggle. And I put the humorous misunderstanding that almost led to civil war in Joshua 22. Remember the, the altar, the replica? And then, of course, there's Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. When the Bible is taught, revolutionary things happen. I gave the example of Josiah, Nehemiah 8, when people are so happy, when Ezra the priest comes and they teach, they say, finally, we're understanding God's word, and they're filled with joy, they're weeping turned to rejoicing, and they gave gifts to each other, and they ate ice cream or whatever they had, and it was fantastic. I gave another example of the Protestant Reformation. And then the seventh and final recurring theme or lesson, which is humorous or not, depending on how you look at it, I think one of the lessons is that we tend not to learn the lessons of history. Say, well, who cares? Some of you may even feel that right now. I don't really care. You're part of the problem, not the solution. Because it's that attitude, multiplied by 100,000. What do we have to learn from history? Sam joked about it on Sunday. You know, does the, do the numbers 1, 9, 7, and 9 mean anything to you? Oh yeah, that's the point where history begins. What are you talking about? We're part of a stream, a current that goes back to the first century. Uh, I gave First Corinthians, uh, First Kings 11, 9. God says to Solomon, although I appeared to you twice, 
twice in vision and I've warned you not to go after other gods. You've disobeyed me and you've gone after these false gods. He didn't learn the lesson of history. Uh, Daniel came to mind, 522, when the chapter where, where Belshazzar is struck dead, he sees the writing on the wall and Daniel interprets it and that night he dies, he drops dead because of his arrogance. And, and what God says to him is that even though your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, was humbled and learned about pride, you didn't take the lesson, and that was just the recent history, you didn't take the lesson from the history in your own family. And God held him very responsible. Or how about Stephen giving the, his last sermon, his last sermon to the Jewish leaders? And I'll, I'll actually read that verse, because we're almost at the very end right now. Acts 7.51. It's a great Bible, the ESV. I think I like it. You stiff-necked people, <laughs> uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which the prophets did you not did your fathers which the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. And he's summing up, he's given them this whole uh, recital of biblical history. He starts with Abraham and all the way to their time. And he says, there's a pattern here, guys. The pattern is, the good guy comes and tells you what you need to hear, and you kill him. And Jesus fits the pattern. He was trying to teach them from history. He knew his Old Testament really well, as we should. And yet we don't want to learn the lessons of history. Beware when people say, we have restored... In all details, proper New Testament worship, governance, and order. We are the OTC. That's the one true church. We have the monopoly. Now, there is one true church, but anyone who has done what Jesus said to be part of that is your brother and sister. It's not about which group. It's about the heart, and it's about repentance and baptism and the basics of the faith. But we tend not to learn the lessons of history. To me, these are some of the biggest lessons right here. And I teach on these excessively, and I have very strong convictions. What are my concluding challenges? Well, before I, I, I give you the concluding challenges, I need to tell you something I've just learned about. Uh, our brother Tom Jones, not a singer, he's a writer, he's a friend of mine, he's got multiple sclerosis, he's an incredible man of faith. He lives in Nashville, and he sent me an email last week and his, he titled his email, Fire in the Churches of Christ. And after listening to two of the lessons in, from this website, I put it up on my website yesterday. Some of you have seen it already. It's a group within the Churches of Christ who are trying to evangelize the world, focusing on the campuses, in their movement, it's not a totally separate thing, their campuses baptize 30 people a year on the average, 30 students in each campus ministry, not bad. And to hear these people talking about the Boston movement, the ICOC movement, and they're very positive, although they say we, we messed up training. We didn't train leaders the right way. <laughs> they had a few things, but overall very positive. I mean, I was going, wow. That was pretty, that did take a lot of gumption. Well, in the next six years, you know, we've got about a hundred more countries to go to. I mean, however you interpret that, that's a bold thing. That's a very bold thing. And this group believes that the key is the small groups. 
And what they're saying is that to, you want to be in our church, you got to, you have to commit to a small group. You want to be in our campus ministry, you've got to be a regular member of a small group. If not, this is not the church for you. And I think the guy said, we're not saying you're lost or you're going to hell. No, but this is not the church for you. You'll find somewhere else. Here, you need to make that commitment. That's the only way it's going to work. And, and then part of their message is simply that. The early church met in small groups. Small groups is where you, people find out who you really are. And they're trying to do it. They're actually they're trying to do what, what we have been trying to do. And they're trying to learn from our history. And they're studying our history to learn, looking at the good and the bad and the ugly and everything, and it's more positive than negative, but I'm telling you, they are studying history and restoration history and Old Testament history, and I was quite, quite amazed by this. What are my concluding challenges? And I'm not going to get to number four. Those are opportunities. If you want to go further, see me. See me. Come to Open Track AIM. We'll do it right. We'll take ten hours to go through 2,000 years. That's doable. Okay. <laughs> My first challenge is that everyone needs to be involved. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, I'll paraphrase. When you come to church, everyone brings something. You come with a psalm, you come with a hymn, you come with a message. Everyone comes ready to give. That's the dynamic of the small group that is lost in the large group unless we fight to preserve small group structure within the context of the large group. Hebrews 3, 12, 13, and it's often not read, 14. 14. For we've come to share in Christ if we hold to the end the confidence we had at the beginning. One another religion, second challenge, we've got to stay separate from the world. <laughs> Be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. Leviticus 19, Leviticus 11. Peter quotes it in 1 Peter 1. I know Tom Brown's read this. I was in Boston um, earlier this year and... And Wyndham Shaw said, this is a book the whole church is reading, set apart, calling a worldly church to a godly life. And I'll tell you, living here, A, in the United States, hotbed of materialism, B, in Cobb County, and I don't know who wrote the Bolton article on Sunday, I don't remember, but that, that seemed to have our number. This is the very thing that Jesus warned can suffocate us, can prevent us from being productive, fruitful to use the biblical word, because the cares of the world, to live a holy life, to separate ourselves from the world. Christianity was countercultural, at least till the fourth century, then it was as worldly as it could be. But it was countercultural. People were mocked. Oh, you're too strict. No, you don't let people do anything. I don't think we're in great danger of that right now. And I would encourage you to join me in reading that book set apart. And my third challenge <laughs> it's not a typo. I gave the same scriptures. Leaders, that is those who, whom others follow, those who make decisions in meetings, those who plant churches, those who preach, teach, eld, name your verb. <laughs> Leaders, more than anyone else, I believe are responsible in the sight of God in the sight of God Almighty to study church history and to learn the lessons and to banish the naive attitude we don't really need that, we've got it under control if we don't learn the lessons of history we're denying all the things that the New Testament said the opening verses we read there leaders need to know the lessons of history and I'm not saying if you're not a leader you're off the hook everyone's responsible here everyone's responsible but as Jesus said, Luke 12:48, to whom much has been given from him, much will be expected.
well, those are some things on my heart. And I'm, co- I'm combining the personal and the academic, the passion with the, the textual, you do with it what you will. Uh, but my, my lesson is over. Brothers and sisters, thank you. And if you, um, if you want to visit me up here, there are lots of book recommendations. You can't have them, but I'm going to give away one to somebody. Uh, if you want to sign up for the museum tour and see the foot of the crucified man and all that cool stuff, there are spaces, but you've got to pay tonight or Sunday. And other than that, I guess that's it. The lessons of church history. The future can be glorious if we're willing to listen to and learn the lessons. But if we're saying what lessons or why, we're no different to the Christians in the Middle Ages or the average Jew under the Old Covenant. I think we can do better than that. And, and we have the record. We have all these places to study. Restoration history, the two millennia of church history, the Old Testament itself. And I hope that stimulated you and challenged you in a, in a good way. And if I stepped on toes, it was done in love or clumsiness. It wasn't done in spite. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching on church history. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.